0: Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Spotlight, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan, in November 2017. In our first story, Betsy Emden is beyond excited when a story she'd written was accepted by a national radio program. But does she now have to hide it from her husband?
1: I just hope I can get away with saying this, but um, the daughter that is here with me tonight uh, is not the one in the story. (laughs) I connected with an agent while working on my MFA in nonfiction writing uh, in 2007. It was thrilling to have a New York agent take interest in my work, but I really didn't expect anything uh, to come of it until one day an email popped up with a message that, This American Life was interested in one of the stories that had been part of my master's thesis. This American Life, I was stunned. I'm not a screamer or squealer, but this was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. A wave of pleasure coursed through me as I read and reread the message. Everyone I knew listened to NPR in This American Life Well, almost everyone I knew. I had to share this world-rocking news with someone, so I went to the closest person. I walked down the hallway and told my husband, who was engrossed in an episode of Judge Judy, or maybe it was a rerun of Walker, Texas Ranger, (laughs) a story I wrote is going to be on the radio, on NPR. His response was something like, "Uh, that's good. He knew that NPR was the station my minivan's radio was tuned to, but it was part of my world of health food, yoga, and lattes sipped in fancy coffee shops. If I told him I was going to be on WHTC, our local Holland, Michigan station, the talk of the town program, now that would have been worse, sitting up on the couch and cheering. But he just shrugged and, uh, eh, that's good. The story that they were gonna broadcast was about my youngest daughter, Kay, losing her virginity the year before. She was 16 and her boyfriend, Jay, was 18. She told me about it the next day and said that he had picked up a morning after pill in Grand Rapids just in case. I like Jay, you know, for things like thinking of morning after pills and was not surprised Uh, that it it had happened. But I didn't want her relying on morning after pills and called our family doctor to see about getting her on birth control. When I explained my reason for calling, the receptionist's voice turned from syrup to ice. In the West Michigan culture in which we were steeped, sex is the worst possible sin, and sex outside of marriage It's even more worse if there is such a thing. And for a mother to accept it, what would the receptionist have thought if she knew we, my daughter, her boyfriend, and I, all shared a hotel room in Chicago less than two weeks later? And to further the the story, Jay shared Kay's bedroom all summer long. What would my husband have thought? Because he had no idea any of this happened. He didn't know about the deflowering, didn't know about the hotel arrangements in Chicago. and we never traveled together. and he didn't know that Jay was living with us. How, how could this be? This American life indeed. Uh, We lived in a split-level house, which I suppose was symbolic. Kay's bedroom was on the lower level with a bathroom, and her dad never descended that far. His world went from his truck to the kitchen to the living room. He even slept in the living room, which was fine with me. I was spared his snoring, and he was spared my reading light. We were two planets orbiting in different solar system. So our weird, dysfunctional family dynamic played in the story as well. I first heard from the producers of This American Life in late May, and the story was eventually broadcast in early October. So I had vet- various editorial emails and phone conversations throughout the summer. Yes, I was exhilarated the day I found out and blurted it to my husband. But the more I worked on the manuscript, the more anxious I became. There was a line in it where I said, I declared I did not love him. I was miserable in this two planet marriage. He was hot as Mercury, stormy and voluble as Jupiter, and distant as Pluto. I still consider it a planet. (laughs) <laughs> and I was afraid of him. He never laid a hand on me, but his almost constant anger at the world turned to rage when he couldn't find the TV remote, and the entire family was sent scurrying to find it. He seized, he seized when the price is right was preempted by pres- a presidential news conference. I couldn't imagine what would happen if I asked for a divorce, which is what I truly wanted. He kept a loaded gun in our garage, ostensibly for critters who might invade the trash, but still creepy. The producers of this American life had admired the brutal honesty of the story, which included not only the honesty of dealing with my teenage daughter's sex life, but my troubled marriage. Now these feelings were gonna be broadcast on national radio. Why had I ever mentioned it to him? Jay lived in our house for three months without him realizing, realizing it. Maybe he would have never found out. Kay, she, had her, she was her own planet and wouldn't have told. And I was certain that no one he knew, neither family nor friends, coworkers, or the clerk at the party store he frequented listened to NPR. But I had mentioned it. The days ticked by. As the broadcast date approached, I struggled with what could be a ghastly reveal. It weighed on me. He may na- never have heard of this American life or know where to find NPR on the radio dial, but he was still aware of a radio program I was going to be on. What about that thing you're having on the radio? He'd asked this in the baffled tone he'd use when inquiring about the goings on in my life, on my planet. Had had he known the truth, it could be my out, but it could be some other kind of out as well. And I was afraid and didn't want to risk that. I don't like lying, but I did. They're not going to use the story, I said. He shrugged without further questions. But days before the broadcast, the producers had another concern. There's that uh, familiar list of TAL editors, producers, engineers, et cetera, that Ira Glass reads at the end of the show. But there are other behind the scene folks as well, including attorneys. The This American Life law team was worried about a lawsuit. Remember, my daughter was 16 when she first had sex with her 18-year-old boyfriend. This was a consensual act, but it could be deemed statutory rape. Even though my daughter would have been the victim, and I as her legal, legal guardian said, I wasn't gonna sue anybody, she was still involved with this boyfriend, they still had to protect their liability They made the rare decision to broadcast the segment anonymously. They even had Julie Snyder read it instead of me, for my voice might be revelatory. My 15 minutes of fame was upon me, and it was going to be anonymous. (laughs) This really lowered the chances of my husband or anyone else finding out, but damn, All the people I wanted to impress weren't going to know either. But but because my husband and I had these two separate orbits, people at my church didn't even know I was married. My (laughs) writing group didn't know what he looked like. The members of the food co-op buying club had never met him. And he'd never had a latte or even a coffee at any of the coffee shops I frequented. He didn't have an email address or use a computer, and this was before Facebook, so I told everyone I saw and emailed everyone else. My daughter, her boyfriend, and I were in Chicago again the day of the broadcast. I don't remember the circumstances of this trip, but I was glad to have the distance and privacy. Huddled over a transistor radio I bought for the occasion, I listened to the story, my story, my words. K and J were in the adjoining room. They had lived it and they still weren't NPR listeners and they didn't need to hear it. The spotlight was shining in that dim room where I sat alone. After the broadcast, we went out onto the crowded streets of Chicago. Did any of these people listen? Did they hear my, did they hear our story, the three of us as we walked around together and saw the movie Across the Universe that night? Well, all of my friends did listen. And even on the day of the broadcast, I received several complimentary emails from some of the people I respect the most. That made me so happy, but there was still the shadow of my husband. Despite everything, could he have found out, suspected, listened, heard about it? No, he didn't. The day after our return from Chicago I, and two days after I had declared over, public, over national radio that I didn't love him, I wrote this in my journal. Same old, same old, back to the same routine. Him in an angry, judgmental, imperious mood telling me to go to the store, do laundry, and I just take it. And I took it for almost two years before I moved to Traverse City and asked for a divorce.
0: In the next story, feminine care is in the spotlight as Anne Bonnie takes a mission trip to educate teenage girls.
2: In the summer of 2016, I was hauling cinder blocks for the walls of a two-room high school in the Koche village in Malawi. I didn't know whether I would get to meet the students who would attend the school. We were just there to help build the school, but I was still really curious to know more about the students who would go there. The site manager answered all of my many questions. There would be about 80 students from about 15 local villages, about three miles away, and an equal number of boys and girls would go to the school. But there was one thing that shocked me. He told me that most girls will miss school for one week every month because they don't have access to sanitary supplies. Now, I remember when I first got my period, I was 12 years old and my mom was away on business, but I remember I had so many sex ed classes in school and Girl Scouts, and Uh, sports teams and things and of course I had read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. (laughs) I knew it was perfect, right? I knew it was perfectly normal. It happened to everybody. It was no big deal. I just went to the store, got some pads and went on with my life. Now in Malawi, in southern Africa, where a family may only have enough money for one, maybe two meals a day, they certainly don't have extra money for the always with wings. So when I got back from the first trip, I joined the board of the Warm Hearts Foundation, which is the nonprofit that I had traveled with and was overjoyed to be invited to help lead the expedition the following year. This trip also happened to be the international service project for my Rotary Club, so that was an extra bonus. In discussing the plight of the Malawian young girls uh, at our 2016 school, we did a little research to see if there was anything we could do for them and discovered a Days for Girls chapter in Benzi County about a half an hour away. Days for Girls is a nonprofit. There are thousands of local chapters and they sew reusable sanitary napkin kits for this purpose. The month before we left on the 2017 expedition, Kathleen, Valerie, and a few other of my fellow Rotarians went to go pick up 200 donated cloth maxi pad kits. They also learned how to deliver the accompanying women's reproductive health curriculum that I thought was gonna be essential to this whole project. Now in mid-June, 18 excited American volunteers and our 38 huge suitcases stuffed to the gills with school supplies and our 200 reusable sanitary napkin kits arrived in Malawi. And now it was the first Saturday of our trip and I was totally excited to be going back to the Coche School with the 10 other females that had volunteered to come. I would get to meet the kids after all. Well, I'd get to meet the girls anyway. We'd planned it on a Saturday so they could discreetly be there without the embarrassment of having to explain why they were getting pulled out of class. I practically skipped into the classroom, excited to continue helping to remove barriers to education for these young women, some of whom had actually even helped us build the school. And as I entered, I looked around, and the smile completely fell from my face. Our classroom was full, 38 eager young women and 40 equally eager young men. They were not supposed to be there. My head whipped to the side and I looked wide eyed at Valerie and clearly she too was trying to decide if we could go ahead with the curriculum with the boys there. I glanced at a few of our other fellow travelers. A few were whispering to each other, others just looked a little panicked. This was not the plan. Harriet, our brilliant Malawian interpreter, started welcoming the students and introducing the lesson. At least that's what I think she was saying. She was speaking in Chichewa, so technically we had no idea what she was saying. The kids were listening intently, eyes glued on Harriet. Then all of a sudden, the room erupted. The girls started cheering and laughing and pointing at the boys. Conversely, the boys groaned and got up and walked out of the room, all dejected. (laughs) The door closed and after a few more giggles from the girls, the room was silent again. 11 adult women in front of the room and 39 bright-eyed ninth grade girls sitting upright at their desks, waiting for whatever was gonna happen next. It struck me that This may have been the first time these girls had ever been put in the spotlight for a special educational opportunity by only women, for only women, and about being women. Though it's changing in modern Malawi, educational opportunities tend to go to the boys first, and their noses pressed against the classroom windows showed that they were not used to being left out. I laughed with the girls, and we all did, as we heard the headmaster shoo them away, and our lesson began. Valerie had the first segment and launched into a typical American lecture style of presenting the female reproductive system. The difference in American and Malawian instruction style became starkly obvious at that time. um, Sometimes in Malawi there's only one textbook for the whole class. So lessons in Malawi are conducted through a lot of repetition. The teacher will say something, the students repeat it, then they answer simple questions to illustrate understanding and continue with the repetition. So from what I could tell, it went kind of like this. Valerie said, women have ovaries that produce the eggs when the eggs are released into the fallopian tubes and into the uterus, and if a sperm hits the tubes, uh, hits it in the tubes, a baby's made and implants in the uterus. And then Harriet would look at her, and Valerie would stop, and then Harriet would launch expertly into the che, che version. Women have ovaries, fallopian tubes, and uterus. What do women have? And all 39 girls in unison would reply, ovaries! <laughs> and fallopian tubes and a uterus! And where does the egg come from? The ovaries! <laughs> and so on. And all of this happened with great ease and with a clear prior knowledge of this topic. And once they were done with their call and repeat, Harriet would give the teacher, whoever of us was teaching, the look that confidently and almost comically said, they get it now, go ahead and do your next part and I'll fix that after you're done. (laughs) Frankly, we didn't probably even need to be there because Harriet was doing all the teaching and the girls knew the basics already anyway. It was really kind of them to let us stay. So we went through the male anatomy and reproduction and baby development and Kathleen and Harriet launched into the final segment, which was how we showed them how to use the reusable pads. Suddenly I started to wonder whether the girls even would think that this was valuable. I mean, maybe they liked not having to go to school one week out of the month. Only one girl in the 39 had said that she had access to disposable sanitary supplies. Harriet had previously told us the other girls would be using rags or leaves which of course makes going to school inconvenient at best. Now I thought they would valued it, but maybe it just wasn't that important to them. For a second I worried that we were wasting their time and our donors' money. So the final activity was to break into groups of three students and one adult, so the girls could demonstrate that they knew how to use the kits. My three girls eagerly grabbed the kit, pulled out the undie, and expertly folded the square cloth into thirds, slipped its slots in the top and bottom of the little pad thingy, and snapped it to the underside of the panty. And then with the little wings, they, you know, they snapped it in there. They simulated washing the square cloth with the soap that they had, and then they folded it back up, put it in the cloth bag, pulled the string, and dropped it, similar to Harriet saying, nailed it. (laughs) Clearly, they totally understood, but did they actually want it? So I asked, will these pads be helpful to you? Hoping that they would say yes, and they immediately said, oh yes. And one launched into a story how she was planning to go to university, she wanted to be a doctor, and this was gonna be perfect because she wouldn't have to miss any school and she could pass her exams, and she went on and on. So I was like, whew. Harriet called everyone back together and explained that they wouldn't be given the kits. They would need to buy them so that they had some ownership in the kit, in their own kit. We weren't asking for the actual cost of the kit, but for whatever they could afford to pay. And I was expecting some disappointment. Now, I didn't think they'd have money with them, so we'd plan to come back on Monday so they would have a chance to scrape something together. As soon as Harriet finished the explanation, though, without prompting, every single girl got up and got in line. Many were pulling money from their pockets or their backpacks, and if they didn't have any, a friend would give them some so that they could buy their kit, too. Not only did they want them, but these girls worked together so that everybody could have one, and eagerly gave what they had so that everyone could have their very own kit that would last them through the remainder of their high school years. Now, I had learned so much about Malawi and about these young girls that day, and we helped them, but not really in the way that I thought we would. They already had the knowledge. Our curriculum was kind of a review. Um, Those kits were the difference makers. Every single girl walked out of the classroom with one, and as a result, They had one less obstacle to overcome in attending school every single day.
0: Next, Janelle Bowers finds herself approached by friends and strangers wanting the inside scoop on a news story after she ended up filmed in the background of a live report.
3: So in August of 2001, I was um, I was 19, I was living in Sacramento, California, and I was working in the funeral industry. I, the funeral industry is like a little bit of a misnomer. I used to call it the death industry because like <laughs> mostly I didn't do funerals. Um, I worked for a company that we like served as agents for the coroner's office and funeral homes, and we would pick people up where they died. Um, and... It's not, like, all buttoned up and pretty and stuff when you get there. It's, like, whatever bizarre-ass circumstance this person died in, like, you're there doing it. And so at that point, I had been doing it for about a year. Um, And I had been exposed to a lot. Like, you know, suicides, car accidents, accidental deaths. Like, the dude that, like, was, like, kicking a piece of wood to try to, like, dislodge it from a... Uh, like an industrial wood chipper for the record. Oh. Really, really bad, bad plan. Don't do that. M- motorcycle accidents, car accidents, natural deaths, homicides, the whole gamut. I was pretty well seasoned and, and you know, working in that industry, like, it's, it's pretty weird, but you get, you know, just like any job, you get sort of assimilated into the culture of it and there's a whole language that develops but inevitably you like go to parties right and people are like so what do you do (laughs) and then they're oddly fascinated (laughs) and they ask these questions that are like super disrespectful but i was like a punk ass 19 year old kid and so i would sometimes i would respond in one of two ways three ways i would either be like well, there was this one time that like my partner pulled that guy's arms off and like that was really crazy. And they would sort of be like, oh my God, I can't believe you just said that. Like, well, stop asking really personal questions about how people die. Or I would just lie and say that I like sold insurance or something really boring. Or if they were going too far, I would sort of shame them. and be like, hey, man, what if that was like your mom or your sister, you like, would you want them being talked about in this way? like have some respect for the dead. But just as people have this odd morbid fascination with death, so does the media, Mm -hmm. which is how I landed myself in the most inopportune photobomb of all times. (laughs) So uh, August 20th of 2001, there was a man named Nicolay Soltys who went on a killing rampage in Sacramento, California. Um, and I was called, um, specifically the coroner requested me because I was known to be professional on the scene and, and be quiet and do as they asked. And um, it was really gruesome. It was his, uh, his he, he murdered his wife who was three months pregnant in their home. And I was, I was called there and when i was called what i was told was um it's it's a homicide it's really messy Mm -hmm. expect to be there for a long time and we don't actually think this is done we think there are more murders that are happening so i get there and it's pretty soon it's pretty pretty recent and um the whole scene is is marked off with yellow tape and there are police officers there and the coroner's office. And, um, you know, when, you, when you're when you there to, to remove the body, they also uh, sort of use you to help process the crime scene. And so I ended up spending a really long time there. And what happens is that you might sit in your van for a long time. You might be brought in and asked to move the body around so they can take pictures and process and measure and this and that and the other, and then asked to go outside again. Um, and it was the worst thing I had ever seen. There was more blood that I even know how to, d- how to describe. Um, and something about being in a room with that much, it's sort of like the smell sticks with you. And so there would be these moments where the coroner's office would say, we really, we need you to go outside so that we can do this other processing and just wait on the front porch and you can come back in. And I really welcomed those in this particular case. Um, I would get to sort of take my like blood soaked booties off and I would honestly go outside and smoke a cigarette and try to push it out of my nostrils to get the smell out. And I think it was in one of those spaced out trying to collect myself moments that I ended up squarely Mm -hmm. in the back frame of a live news like from the scene broadcast. Just like standing there like the hairy shirtless guy (laughs) in your like fantasy vacation photo, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. So I ended up staying at the house for about six or seven hours and finally got to transport this woman to the coroner's office. And in which case they like, they follow the gurney with the body on it and like zoom in on you. Cause it's this like gruesome, morbid fascination. And, and then it continued. Like I wanted to go home and I wanted to wash the whole thing off of me and just reset. But what had happened is that they discovered his aunt, his uncle his niece and nephew murdered just a few miles away. So two of our crews were there processing that scene, leaving the rest of the calls for the night sort of squarely on our shoulders. Um, The last time that he had been seen, he was picking up his three-year-old son from his mother's house. And as the days unfolded, the next day they found his son and he landed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Um, And as the days unfolded, Really, Sacramento became the biggest manhunt that Sacramento had ever known. Um, and a, at first, I didn't know that I was on the news, right? So at first it started out with friends and family calling and saying, Janelle, what is going on with this murder? You have to tell me. And I, I didn't know anything other than the details of what happened in the house. But then it started being different. Like I, we, were, we were really busy. And I would stop in my, my black suit and go to Starbucks to pick up a cup of coffee between calls. And, and the barista would get this like, weird, enthusiastic look on her face and go, Oh, you, I saw you on the news. You picked up that crazy dude's wife, didn't you? And I would sort of look shocked because I hadn't been able to shake the experience of picking this woman up. And it, and they would ask crazy questions like, I heard, I heard that he did this crazy thing. I heard that he was in the Russian mafia and that he's a spy. Did you see spy stuff in his house? And sometimes, I would res- respond really aggressively, but I would just stand there and go like, What? This is a. Per- this isn't. This is not uh, law and order. Like these are actual people. And this manhut continued for for days. He wasn't found for for 10 days. There was a whole national, uh, like APBs put out um, for him. And finally, he was discovered in his mother's backyard. They hadn't been harboring him, but he showed up and his family escaped and called 911. And they arrested him. He later would die in prison. He was arrested on August 30th, and what happened in the meantime is that these scenes from his wife's house were continuously played on this loop, these live shots that they had gotten, and so I was in the background the whole time, in every shot, over and over and over again, and I was a little bit afraid that this wouldn't stop. It was the biggest crime spree that had been committed in this area. And it was sort of surprising how many people recognized me in that place. But, you know, as our media does, some other tragedy comes along and replaces. And in the early morning hours of September 11th in 2001, two planes crashed into the World Trade Center. And suddenly the immigrant problem and scare of the former USSR members that lived in Sacramento stopped being such a scare. And I got my life back in public, but all of our public lives changed after that. Thank you.
0: Is it possible to resist the combination of a costume shop open late and a masquerade ball you're not invited to? In the next story, Brad Lystra tells us that it is, in fact, not possible.
4: All right, it's February of 2013, and I've just moved back to Michigan. I'm staying up here, and it's been snowing for what feels like a couple weeks. And I get a call from my, my friend in Wisconsin, Rod. He lives in Madison. And Rod, when he was in college, did some work as a travel agent. So he has this really great knack of always searching online for great tickets that are out there, kind of through the airlines. And He goes, Brad, we can get to Istanbul right now with a, for a round trip ticket for $500. There's like a deal on Turkish Airlines. Can you meet me at O'Hare in two days? <laughs> and I, I, I clearly said yes. I, I had, it was the furthest thing from my mind, but at that moment I knew I needed to be on my way to Istanbul, so I throw Istanbul, so I throw everything together in my suitcase and backpack back into the car and i 'm driving down to chicago and i 'm listening to the radio as i 'm throwing this trip together, and nPR comes on, and they have like a, a news alert like global news, and our embassy is bombed in Turkey, and I call up Rod, and i 'm like. Rod, this is really weird, but like our embassy just got bombed. Isn't this kind of, this is just, I don't know, just something that I wanted to talk to him about. <laughs> and I'll never, I still to this day don't know what he meant when he said this, but he goes, Brad, don't worry about it. this, happens to me all the time. <laughs> and I, I, I have no idea. And I was like, okay, and he's like, we'll be fine. I already have us scheduled, we got an Airbnb for like $80 a night, just off kind of one of the main districts in in Istanbul. So we fly there, we get our Airbnb, we're set up, we're touring the city, looking at all the sites, the Spice Bazaar, the Grand Bazaar, the Sultan's Palace, the the room, the Sultan's Harem, all of these things. It's, It's a beautiful city, it's really great to visit. One of the things we quickly realized is that we're staying, our Airbnb is on the same street as the Italian Embassy Um, to Turkey, and it's this beautiful, magnificent mansion with wrought iron gates and ornate landscaping. It's a a really impressive historical building just around the corner from our Airbnb. We've been there about three nights now. We're starting to get familiar with the city a little bit. And we're heading back to our Airbnb one night after dinner. It's probably around like seven o'clock. And it's just one of those odd things that we notice as we're kind of going down this alley. There's a, there's a costume shop that's open late at night. And we just kind of make the joke, like this is kind of like only in Istanbul. like Why is there a costume shop open right now selling really nice costumes? Um, just odd at that time of night. Well, this is kind of like serendipity personified, what is about to happen. We literally go another couple hundred feet, and we see two guys in gladiator outfits. Like, <laughs> sword, shield, helmets, you know, full deal. And they actually want us to take, take their picture for like Facebook or something like that. And we oblige and take their photos and they speak some English and we're like, where are you going? There's a masquerade ball at the Italian embassy. And I look at Rod. I'm like, we're going back to that costume shop right now. And he goes, Brad, we're not invited to this party We don't speak any Turkish, we don't speak any Italian, and the building is clearly gonna be guarded. And I said, Rod, this is all true, but they've also invited everyone to wear a mask to their party. I think I can get us in. (laughs) So we go back, we purchase a couple masks, Rod's got this like Zorro eyes with flamingo, like uh, peacock feathers coming out of it, and I've got this uh, conquistador kind of above the cheek kind of helmet with a hat on it. And we walk back um, by, on the way back to the Airbnb, we, go to the, we walk by the embassy, and there's guards at the gate taking names as all the guests are kind of going into this red carpet affair. We go back to the Airbnb and we're like, how are we gonna do this? We decide on a strategy. We're kind of thinking there's a lot of diplomats at this party and there's a lot of VIPs and they're checking names now, but perhaps they're not gonna be checking names later. So if we go back and we're wearing our masks and we wait outside the gates at around like 10 o'clock as opposed to like eight o'clock when the party's starting, we might be able to figure out a way to get in then. So we go back, and we start with our masks on, and we wait outside the gate, kind of pretending like we're having a cigarette. And there's also, at this point, like just like we had said, they had stopped taking names at, that, at, the, at the wrought iron gate on the sidewalk. And just as we're arriving, five people walk out, on their way home, and I grab the gate. I turn a rod and I laugh very loudly, and we walk into the embassy. We go across the lawn. We confidently walk through the front doors, and we go straight to the bar, and we start having some drinks. So we're at the embassy. We're drinking for free. We're in our masquerade outfits. Everybody else is in their masquerade outfits. And we're, the, the, the evening's going pretty well. It's a beautiful building. Like, I think if you could imagine the Italian embassy in Istanbul, it's like a James Bond set. <laughs> you have sweeping staircases connecting to balconies with sweeping staircases coming off of them. You have marble floors. You have columns and pillars, atriums. It's really a fantastic building, architecturally. Well, after we were there for like half an hour, an hour, I decided, Rod, I'm going to wander around and kind of, kind of just take in the party a little bit and the atmosphere and some of the other, just kind of look at the architecture. Rod's well, like, you go do that, I'm going to go to the dance floor and I'm going to dance. So I start exploring the embassy. And I find myself in a few wings that I quickly realize are not a part of the party. They're kind of more like dark hallways and I think they're like, might even be like living quarters or something like that. I turn around and I leave because I kind of realize like this is not the party at all so I got to get out of here. And as I'm coming down the staircase, coming out of this dark hallway on the third floor, I'm quickly surrounded by five Italian security guards. And One of them's holding a list. And he goes, and I'm wearing my Conquistador mask. (laughs) And he goes, excuse me, sir. We noticed you coming out of the third floor hallway, which is not really part of the party. Other guests have done that tonight. That's totally fine. But just for security's sake, we wonder if you could tell us who you are on the guest list. And I quickly glance at the guest list. It's all Italian and Turkish names, which I can't even pronounce. And I quickly realized, like, there's no way I can pretend to be any one of those persons. (laughs) And then I'm, uh, in that instant of a second, I think I should run. (laughs) And I quickly realized, like, well, these guys will probably catch me. And if I get caught running I'm really gonna look like a bad suspect, and I might—that might get me in a Turkish prison. <laughs> so I turn to the Italian who's talking to me, and I say, "I'm not on the list." And he looks at me with these giant wide eyes. He's like, "You're not on the list? Like, how did? Like, w- w- explain further." And I—I—I I, I look at him and I go, "I snuck in." <laughs> And these, the five security guards at the embassy grab me. They take off my Conquistador mask. They're holding the Conquistador mask. And they walk me to a detainment room. And I am now detained at the Italian consulate in Istanbul for sneaking into a masquerade ball. Now, now. They start to interrogate me. Um, one of the first questions they ask, well, after they take my wallet, my passport, my iPhone, and my IDs, one of the first questions I remember them asking is, is, like, where did you get your mask? <laughs> and I, I turn to him and I'm like, there's a costume shop open on the street, like literally a block up the street. And the security guard turns to the other security guard and goes, guys, did you know there was a costume shop open, like, across the street from the embassy? It was just one of those funny <laughs> moments. He, um, at one point, he brings in an older woman who I only assume is, like, a dignitary's or, like, some ambassador's wife to do, like, the eye test. Like, do you know this man? He... Um, she does not recognize me at all, obviously. Um, he takes out my ID, and when he looks at my ID, I used to live in Washington, DC. And he looks at my ID, and he goes, Washington, DC. And I can, he's literally like, aye, 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 ay. <laughs> And he looks up at me, and he goes, you live in DC. And he gives me this look and it's the most amazing look anyone's ever given me cuz i knew right then he, he was thinking i'm 85% sure this guy's a complete jackass <laughs> but 15% think he might be a spy <laughs> <laughs> and i swear to him i really just want to go to his i just wanted to go to his party and I meant absolutely no harm he tells me at that point we began to have a little bit of a conversation and he asked me if I had heard about the bombing in Ankara at the U.S. Embassy and I was like I had heard that the embassy was bombed this week and he goes you know we really weren't sure we were going to do this party because of that and I go, I know, everyone's wearing a mask. <laughs> He's like, yeah, we've had a really hard time with security tonight. <laughs> he goes, we, we had a discussion with the ambassador and we were gonna cancel the party, but we, we all decided that people had so much fun last year at the Masquerade Ball that we couldn't call it off. And I was like, well, fair enough. (laughs) So after about an hour of them going through my documents and asking me where I was staying, and he tell me it was at an Airbnb down the street, they're like, all right, we're going to let you go. But you can never do this again. We have one question though, did you, did you come with anybody else? <laughs> and after telling them so many truths, I finally had to tell them a lie. Because the idea of me walking through this party and going out on the dance floor in like this giant atrium of the embassy and fingering my friend And having the security (laughs) apprehend him was just too much for me to bear. So I was like, no, I came by myself. I really just wanted to check out your party. (laughs) And they believed me. He goes, okay, we're gonna let you go. We're gonna take you to the gate. And I was like, okay, I have one favor to ask because this is really embarrassing. And I feel really bad about this. But if you guys like walk me to the gate, like as a security force. I don't want people to see it because it'll kind of make a scene and it'll kind of look like security is kicking somebody out of the embassy who's not supposed to be there. And all that seems kind of like something that people would notice. I was like, let me put my mask back on and I'm going to walk like 10 or 15 feet in front of you to the front door and you guys can follow me and then I'm going to go out the front door, and I'm going to go to the wrought iron gate, and I'll let myself out, and you can watch me the whole way, and then I'm going to go back to my Airbnb, and that way nobody will know that like I snuck in, and your security was breached, and there were people here who weren't supposed to be here, and they, were, and they looked at me and I think they realized the absurdity of the whole situation <laughs> and how they also felt like they had somehow failed as well. And They're like, okay, <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> so they, that's exactly the way I did. I walked out the door, I escorted myself out of the building with my Conquistador mask. I went back to the Airbnb and it started to rain. And I was locked out of the Airbnb, and I waited for two hours in the rain while Rod danced on the marble floors of the Italian consulate in Istanbul.
0: Next, a rave in Croatia convinces Polly Hurlburt that the best approach to life is to dance like everyone is watching.
5: So you know that saying, dance as if no one's watching? I say, fuck that, dance as if everybody's watching. <laughs> and I kind of adopted that credo after a night in Croatia a few years ago. I was gypsying around Europe, and I found myself in Croatia, and I spent about a week on a, on a sailboat going up and down the coast, and eventually ended in, in Split, this beautiful town uh, right on the coast there. And I walked into a bar, and I went to order a beer. And I said, bok, velo kapiva malom, Fala." And she hands me the beer, and then she starts talking to me and, in Croatian. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I only speak English. And she says, wow, you, you said that really well. Like, even your accent was on. I said, thank you. I've been ordering a lot of beer. <laughs> and that led to a conversation. And after about 10 minutes or so of talking, she asked me what, where I'd been and where I was going. And I said, I going to Plitvice Lakes, and then Zagreb after that. And she says, well, me and my friends are going to Zagreb tomorrow for a trance DJ party. You should come with us. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Immediately patted myself on the back for traveling like a gypsy and not making any plans, because no plans are much easier to break. So the next day, I get on a bus uh, with Iris and her friend Dora for five hours when we get to Zagreb, and we meet up with their friends that were already there and take a car to the outskirts, just middle of nowhere You're looking around. I was like, I would never want to be here, but this bombed out building that <laughs> probably still had been vacant since the war that had been there actually 20 years ago. Uh, people asked me like oh, traveling around Europe was anywhere dangerous? I'm like, no, no, it was fine. Well, there was this set of stairs in, at this rave in Zagreb. There was, those were fucking treacherous. But I, I make my way into the building, and inside, it's, it's, um, it is a party. They're, they have it set up for this rave. There's three different levels. Each level has a different DJ. Um, throughout the night, they're switching DJs, but each level kind of has its own vibe. And this place alone, just for people watching, was worth it. And I spent kind of the first couple hours just uh, walking around and soaking it all in. There was was everyone from uh, dreadlock hippies to gangsters, and there was this old guy with white hair and like a Willie Nelson knot down to his waist. He was in the basement level just ferociously headbanging to this driving driving, uh, techno music. And that room was a little too intense for me, but I found my way back upstairs. I uh, sit down on a couch, and these three Croatian guys sit next to me on a couch that only has space for two, and they start talking to me in Croatian, and I say, I'm sorry, I only speak English, and he says, oh, you're, you're American. Yeah? What the fuck are you doing here? And he, d- he didn't mean it like in a get out of here. He was just genuinely surprised, like, how did you end up here? And I said to myself, yeah, <laughs> I'm in the right spot. And everyone was really nice. See, the people that brought me there, they were very generous. And they even came up to me at one point and said, hey, would you like some, some candy? And I said, well, I don't really have much of a sweet tooth, but uh, when in Rome or an Eastern European rave, you know, just very generous people. <laughs> That's not that important to the story. You, you know what I'm, You know what I mean. So I'm in this middle room and the middle level and this is by far my favorite vibe of the whole place. They've got tapestry on the walls. The DJ in this uh, room is always it's very eclectic music with like world percussion and I'm really digging this music and I <coughs> I start to dance. And I've got kind of a unique style of dancing. <laughs> it's not as weird as you might think, but uh, it's uh, I'm a percussionist and Uh, Being a musician, you know, you you listen to music very closely and you can anticipate uh, changes and especially improvisational music. And I find myself kind of dancing almost as if my body's an instrument and, you know, making sure I throw a limb out like right at the hits. And uh, my, my body's moving, kind of flowing in between them. And this DJ is just getting me going. And I start dancing hard. And, whoo! <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just in my mind, just, just having the best jam of my life, in my mind. And I look around and I, I start to notice that everyone around me starts to stop dancing and just slowly back up. And <laughs> the next thing I know, I am the only one on the dance floor. And I'm looking around and Man, did I did I fart or something? Like, <laughs> I'm am I am I awkward? Um, I looked down. and was like, I don't think so. I think I'm killing it. <laughs> I might be white, but I got rhythm. And I, so I just keep going. I don't care. I'm just I'm having a time. I felt like me and this DJ had just we were like in a band together, and and we'd played together music for years. And I I knew every, if he dropped the beat, I dropped. I I was in tune but eventually I I started sweating so profusely that I I had to go outside and and cool down and my uh, friends that I had gone there with came out with me and they they reassured me that I was in fact killing it because they came out and said where the fuck did you learn how to dance like that we were just tripping out watching you. And uh, yeah, the friendship was formed. I went from just kind of the weird, quiet American guy there, to the guy crushing it on the dance floor. <laughs> and as I walked around for the rest of the night, I kind of noticed people just kind of eyeballing me as I walked into a room. And and uh, once again, I wasn't sure if if I'd done something weird or. But then I, uh, those were once again confirmed when, you know, I got into a room and was kind of feeling it out again and. Just got back into it, and I overheard someone whisper, There he goes. <laughs> so that's the night that I adopted the credo dance as if everybody's watching. <laughs>
0: In our final story, Elon Cameron tells of how her early ambitions of fame were not necessarily unrealized.
6: What a great night, you guys. It's such a great... I mean, what an honor to be here with all these other amazing storytellers. Thanks, you guys, storytellers, people. Um, when I was a child... I had big dreams. I wanted to be Elon Cameron's star of stage and screen. It makes total sense to me now, being of mild to moderate neglect, that I would <laughs> require such attention from the world. And you know, some folks here might not know that I have a day job, which is a huge compliment. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> But those of you who, who might not know, I'm an acupuncturist. And I was recently uh, misquoted in a publication that I love very much, um, saying that I often see patients hear at Hearsay, which I would absolutely never, ever in a million years say. I would never say that. <laughs> I, like, called the owner of my practice when I saw that in print, and I was like, I would never. She's like, I know. It's no big deal. No one, whatever. It's fine. And um. A w- What I told the person who wrote the story is a woman told her friend she was coming to see me for acupuncture. And her friend said, Elon Cameron, the comedian? (laughs) And it was like... It happened! (laughs) I have arrived. I'm done. Good night, folks. (laughs) That was like the best... I mean one of the best compliments I've ever had. So it was such a delight. And I, I, I know I didn't say anything about patients because my HIPAA compliance is so insanely serious that many people who come to see me for acupuncture will be like, I wish my mother, sister, uncle, cousin, brother, friend, so-and-so would come see you. And I'm like, they do. But I don't say that because I'm HIPAA compliant. I've had brothers and sisters come see me. And they're like, I wish my brother or sister would come see you. And I'm like, Should Let them know. Tell them that. I've had husband wives come see me. I'm like, yeah, totally remind them how good they felt. So it's one of those things that maybe I'm just saying that for my own comfort more than yours, but I just wanted to make that completely clear because I would never say that. My spouse doesn't even know who I see for as patients or for my practice, unless, you know, Jen maybe stops by the office sometimes to use the toilet, because it's a centrally located place. (laughs) And then Jen's like, oh my God, you're here! And people are like, yeah, Elon, needles and things. So I'm an acupuncturist. For those of you who don't know what that means, it means I went to school for the same number of classroom hours as a doctor, a physician, a DO. Um it means I have at least that level of education as a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner. and in northern Me- Michigan in the Western medical model, I'm respected at the level of a medical assistant. <laughs> so and I say Northwest in, in Northwestern Michigan because I worked for years in Chicago at Northwestern Hospital at um, the the Cancer Health, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, I worked at St. Joseph's Hospital, and all the doctors in all of these hospitals regarded me as an equal. And maybe that's my problem, again. But I also think it's important to know that not all acupuncturists have the training that I do. In fact, there's a person here in Traverse City who had a weekend workshop in Chinese medicine. (laughs) I'm gonna tell you right here, that's two days of training. I went to school for five years with no summers off. I wasn't taking 12 credit hours, I was taking 21 credit hours. Anyway, there are also massage therapists in Northern Michigan who prescribe Chinese herbs, which I find mind-blowing. I had to spend years in clinical practice with supervisors who had the eagle eye of the gods on you. When you put an herb in a formula, they were like, why are you putting more Lugun in that formula, Elon? And I'd say, well, because it enters the kidney channel. It is sweet and cooling, and I suspect it will help with their hot flushing. Okay. (laughs) Like the most stern, angry Chinese person you can imagine. Like, you never want that lady mad at you. That's who I had to get through to perform Chinese medicine. Not to mention a $700 and very stressful, very long exam in order to be nationally board certified. But that's not what I'm here to discuss. Michigan politics around accreditation and licensure are very hot topics for me, so if you just wanna see my head completely blow off, just feel free to bring these issues up in conversation. It'll be super fun for you. What I'm telling you about myself is that I'm a medical professional. In some ways, my childhood dream of being famous is realized simply in my daily practice. When I'm teaching a patient some Qigong exercises to help with energy, focus, low back pain, I'm the star of the show. When a patient comes in to see me for the first time, I'm in a room with this person with their undivided attention for almost two hours. Now, we're not talking about me. I really hope we're not talking about me. (laughs) I'm asking complex and often difficult to answer questions about their health. How do they sleep? What do they eat? How do they feel? Do they have any pain? What makes it better? What makes it worse? And if you think about it, if I can get someone who has been taking seven Norco a day, who had a pain level at eight out of 10, down to a one or a two, who is safely weaned off of all medication in less than a year, that's fucking better than being famous. But it took me a long time to see it that way because when I began acupuncture school, back before the earth's crust had fully formed, <laughs> I had an identity crisis. <laughs> I had a full-blown freakout because everything I'd done up to that point was in some way in service of eventually being famous. In high school, I was gonna be a famous actress. Serious theater, mostly modern stuff. You probably haven't heard of it. (laughs) And then in undergrad, I went to art school. I wanted to be the next Annie Leibovitz. I was taking portraits. I did a ton of work. It was really satisfying, but... It didn't take long before I realized I didn't wanna be a full-time artist. It was a lot of work. It was really hard to hustle that hard all the time. When I started acupuncture school, I had this gravity of realizing I'm never gonna be famous for this. I'm not gonna be a famous actor or photographer. I was going to school to become a Chinese medicine practitioner. So I had to hang out with that freak out for a while. And what became clear to me was I needed new rock stars. I needed new people to strive to be like. Because what is the awesome measure in Chinese medicine? Who's the coolest guy you can think of in Chinese medicine? (laughs) Well, could I be as good as Susan Johnson? or Jeffrey Yuen or Dr. Tan? Could I be a scholar like Paul Unschuld or reach the public the way Ted Kapchuk has? Because these people are stars in my universe. They have skills and abilities beyond my comprehension or explanation. They work for organizations like the International the World Health Organization, Harvard Medicine. But back in my first year of Chinese medicine school, I had to ask my teachers, who are the people who move you to practice this medicine better? Who's in the top of this field? Who did you learn the most from? Who had the most profound impact on you as a student or as a practitioner? And so I have had the good fortune to study with the nerdiest, the most reclusive weirdos, the most revered scholars of the medicine I doubt I will ever be done with studying. Because I have so many unanswerable questions and the further I go into this medicine, studying the the theoretical and ontological roots of this medicine, the more impossible the questions that I have become. In medicine, we practice something called universal precaution. That is an awareness that every patient may have some disease that is imminently communicable that could kill me, and that I have a disease that is imminently communicable that could kill the patient, were I not to practice this universal universal precaution. Basically like pneumonia, hepatitis, typhoid, cancer, AIDS. And so I wash my hands a lot. That means that I wash my hands before I see a patient. It means I wash my hands before I pick up a sterile object, including but not limited to an acupuncture needle. It means that before I insert acupuncture needles, I wash my hands, and after I insert acupuncture needles, I wash my hands, and before I remove acupuncture needles, I wash my hands, and after I remove acupuncture needles, I wash my hands, and if I touch anything, anywhere in that process, including a pen, I have to wash my hands. Which makes it really interesting when I have a paper cut. Because when I have a paper cut, every single time I wash my hands, I remember what I'm doing. And every time that happens, I'm reminded of just how vulnerable each of us is in every way to life, to death, to disease, to this moment, to everything. And I think in some ways, maybe that's what makes me good at what I do. I mean, writing things down and sharing them publicly in a place like this My generally nervous demeanor and anxious curiosity and my inability to ever be jaded about things, except for children, I'm sorry, (laughs) tends to be the thing that people don't know that I've been writing and telling stories publicly since 1999. That being real and vulnerable up here with, with you fine people has given me the desire to do more writing more public sharing of that work and and see where it might take me. Because this is vulnerable. And sometimes it feels like a giant paper cut and simultaneously incredibly self-indulgent to stand up here, hogging the spotlight for at least the 10 minutes I'm allowed. Sorry, Karen. And I love it. I love that we get to share here. I love these moments as much as I love helping people because it's real. I get nervous before I come up here, especially because more and more you people actually know me. (laughs) You guys know things that most of my friends and family don't know unless you've read my journal for the last 37 years. So maybe the ego-driven, I'll show them by becoming famous, child is still in charge of me and my ego. Or maybe there's something here, some mix of healing and magic, of sharing and receiving, something that is so much easier for me to endure than a paper cut. What I love to do is help people by doing my job. The other thing I love to do, I mean, really love to do is this, be here with you. I'm not saying that I'm my best when I'm making you laugh or snort laughing at my own disgustingly obnoxious jokes (laughs) or telling you about my nominal accu fame. No, it's when I'm in the bleak silences of not sure I can read the next line. When I say, that's all I have, and you take it, and you thank me for it, and you say, I hope you keep telling stories, because that's the only spotlight that counts, because we're real, and we're here together, and this is true, so thank you.
0: Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. And thank you to our guest MC for the spotlight show, Jen Cameron. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in December where our theme is That Week. Thanks for listening.